our world. Nobody truly knows where it came from or how it got here. Of course, we all have our own opinion of what or how it happened. Everything from a bunch of chemicals that happened upon each other and blasted us into a planet perfect for us all to live on to it being the work of perfection of our creator. Nobody knows exactly when this happened or how old the world actually is. Some say millions of years, while others argue that it's only a few thousand. The inhabitants of this old world, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed some pretty unbelievable historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from serial killers to weird creatures that show up and destroy their lives. The worst creature of them all, though, just might be man himself. I, being born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond the pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. This old world outside of these mountains has seen its share of it as well. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey around the world for we seek out things that are not always as they seem, and history is not always as what we've been told. I guarantee it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's always one thing about reading history and researching it. It never fails that what you've been told or what you assume to be fact ain't always the way it was. And... As I've stated many times before, right when you think things couldn't get any worse than the world is today, you stumble upon a story that couldn't even begin to make you understand. Then, as you realize that it happened many years ago, you wonder if the world has actually become a lot worse than it used to be, or is it just that more of the evil that walks among us now are making the news? You know, since uh, everybody now has... uh, a cell phone camera and social media set up, I think uh, I'm probably once again leaning toward the latter of those two statements. Come on in, get comfortable, and let me tell you one that's nothing but a low-down, dirty shame. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I guess we'll start at the root of the whole thing. Delphine McCarty was born on March 17, 1787. 
in New Orleans, which was a Spanish territory at the time. She was born to Louise Bartholomew and Marie-Jean McCarty after they'd moved from Ireland. Uh, just to give us an idea of what was happening in the world at the time, the United States would officially become the United States in September of that year when the, our Constitution would be ratified. Not that it affected Louisiana at the time, but it's, at least it's worth a note. There were some notable birthdays on March 17th as well. And it's uh, Rob Lowe, Gary Sinise, Danny DeVito, and Nat King Cole. There's apparently a good day to be born, with exception to Delphine. Young Delphine grew up fairly privileged. Her parents were prominent European Creoles, high up on the New Orleans Society totem pole. Delphine's uncle was the governor of two Spanish-American provinces when he was born. Later, a cousin would become mayor of the city of New Orleans. At the time of Delphine's childhood, New Orleans and much of the rest of Louisiana were, like I said, under Spanish control right up until 1801. Delphine McCarty's beauty and wealth were well known in New Orleans, and as such, she didn't lack for male suitors. Delphine was just 14 years old when, in 1800, she married her first husband, Dan Angelo who was a highly-ranked officer in the Spanish Royal Army. They were married in St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans, but the couple didn't stay in the city for long. In 1804, Don was appointed the Council General for Spain in the territory of Orleans, which, and he was called back to Madrid to take his place in court as was befitting his new position. Now, Don left for Madrid, but, well, he never arrived. While en route to Spain, Don died in Havana on March 26, 1804. Of, well, nobody could find any, any reason for his death other than it just noted that he died. At the time of his death, Delphine was pregnant with the first child, and she gave birth to a daughter who she named Marie. While still in Cuba, shortly after the death of her husband, and uh, not long afterward, the baby and her young mother returned to her hometown in New Orleans. So that left her a young widow with a baby. Just a few years later, after she returned home, Delphine met a New Orleans banker, a lawyer, and a merchant by the name of John Blank. Despite being a widow with now a four-year-old daughter, she was still a desirable woman, renowned for her beauty and social connections. Mr. Blank was... Also, a man of prominent social standing, and the couple seemed like a pretty good match. They were married on June 1908. I'm sorry, 1808. Mr. Blank purchased a house in 409 Royal Street for his growing family around the same time. The couple moved into the home, known as the Villa Blanc, and had a total of four children together. They all lived together, and for the next eight years, they were seemingly uneventful. That was until Mr. Blank dropped over in 1816. He left clear instructions in his will that one of his elderly slaves, a man named Jean-Louis, should be free following his death. Delphine honored his wishes, and Jean-Louis became a free man in 1819. In 1828, now twice a widow, 
Delphine married for the third time in January of 1828. She was 16 years older and said to be saddlebagging it around the house, but was a good deal wealthier than Dr. Leonard LaLaurie, the young physician she had hired to treat her daughter Pauline after a spinal deformity. The French doctor arrived in New Orleans in 1825 and advertised himself as a French physician acquainted with the means lately discovered in France of destroying hunches. So he takes humps off people's backs. The couple began an affair shortly after his arrival and Delphine was soon pregnant with his child. They married around five months after Delphine gave birth to their son. I guess he took the hump off her back first. Around 1828, Delphine purchased a house at 1140 Royal Street in New Orleans, and the property was owned and managed in Delphine's name alone. She oversaw a series of renovations to the place, turning the modest home into a beautiful three-story mansion, complete with gold-plated expensive furnishings and separate quarters for her slaves. The relationship was not a happy one, and Dr. LaLaurie slept separately from his wife for most of their marriage. Delphine filed for a separation in 1832, claiming that in the presence of many witnesses, the good doctor had beaten and wounded her in the most outrageous and cruel manner, and was asking the court to authorize her to live separately from her husband and the home she now occupies with her family. However, their separation was not permanent, and it appears that they resumed living together sometime in the following year. Delphine and Louis never divorced, probably because Delphine had amassed a good deal of wealth by this point through her two former marriages and her inheritance. At the beginning of her marriage, Delphine was worth around 67000 while Louis had a mere 2000 that he had inherited from his mother's estate. Doesn't look like taking the question mark out of people's spine paid very well, does it? Wasn't enough scoliosis to go around in New Orleans, I guess. Anyway, the $67,000 would be worth about $2 million in today's money. Despite their own marital troubles, the couple's home at 1140 Royal Street soon became famous for its fancy galas and extravagant balls. Delphine LaLaurie became known for her gracious hosting abilities and uh, lavish parties that were held in the mansion, and to help her manage the responsibilities of the big house and its many social events, Delphine kept at least 54 slaves to cook, clean, and run the mansion. The mansion would soon become famous, or I guess more accurately infamous, for another reason. There's no doubt that Delphine was in the public eye as a New Orleans socialite, and Rumors about her darker side would soon percolate out of the cracks of the house and into the streets of New Orleans. People were starting to talk about the excessive cruelty she showed toward her slaves, to the point where somebody called the police and local authorities had to be dispatched to her home to check on the conditions of her slaves and reprimand her for her excessively harsh treatment. While physically punishing slaves was a common and even accepted practice in the 1800s, The state actually had laws on the books to discourage abuse and excessive cruelty, as if keeping them as slaves wasn't cruel or something. I guess I I have no idea what went through people's minds at that time, I tell you. 
Louisiana law stated that the slave is entirely subject to the will of his master who may correct and chastise him, though not with unusual rigor, nor so as to maim or mutilate him or to cause his death. There's so much wrong with that statement that I don't even know where to start, but I'll just pause here a second and let that sink in. Many people who observe Miss LaLaurie believe that she was definitely using unusual rigor to punish her slaves, even throwing a good beating on her own kids if they attempted to show kindness or offer them food. Accounts of her slaves being singularly haggard and wretched sent another lawyer to the LaLaurie home in 1834. But nothing came of these charges either, other than another minor reminder of about the state's laws regarding excessive cruelty to slaves. Even after visits from the authorities, Delphine's mistreatment of her slaves didn't stop, and rumors continued to spread around New Orleans. One of the most disturbing stories to come out of the LaLaurie Mansion was the rumor of the terrible death of a 12-year-old slave girl named Leah. The girl had been brushing Madame LaLaurie's hair when she hit a snag, which caused the madam to fly into a rage. She leapt up and grabbed her whip, and Leah ran rather than face the brutal beating. Delphine, still furious, chased after the little girl. A neighbor who apparently witnessed the incident recounted seeing the young girl flying across the yard towards the house and Madame LaLaurie trying to run her down with a cowhide strap in her hand. That was until they ended up on the roof. At that point, she heard the child fall and saw her being taken up, her body bending and limbs hanging as if every bone in her body was broke. At night, she saw the body being brought out, a small hug, a hole dug in the, by torchlight, of course, and a body thrown in the hole and covered up. The neighbor who had witnessed the incident reported it, which prompted yet another investigation into the LaLaurie mansion and uh, another visit from a lawyer. This time, thanks to the testimony of witnesses who saw her burying the child, the hard-headed Delphine was found guilty of illegal cruelty. She was fined $300 and forced to give up nine of her slaves. There, I guess that'll teach her, won't it? For the love of Mike. Of course, the law still heavily favored slave owners, and Delphine's wealth gave her significant advantages. She managed to get around her punishment by simply asking friends and families members to buy her slaves and then send them back to work for her. Then she paid them for their troubles, and all nine of the slaves eventually were dragged back to the dreaded mansion. Although she circumvented the law, Delphine appeared to have suffered no further penalties for her trouble. And despite the fact that the stories of her excessive cruelty were now well known, violence toward her slaves was mostly tolerated and her social standing didn't appear to be harmed in the least, even after the guilty verdict. Like we always say in the mountains, you can't hide money. Everything finally came to a head on the morning of April 10th, 1834, when a fire broke out in the kitchen of the mansion. Both Delphine and her husband were inside their home when the fire started and were seen running out with their arms full of valuables, jewels, and other items they were hoping to save from the destruction.
A crowd began to gather, and bystanders found it odd that none of their slaves were seen running out or into the mansion to help save their things. However, when they offered to help move the slaves into a safe location, Louis Lore, Lore responded, There are those who would be better employed if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of other people. A long-winded way of saying, mind your own business. As the fire got worse, the slaves' screams and cries could be heard from the street. Many people already suspected that they had been restrained or locked away, but the little lorries still refused to allow anybody into their home to rescue the slaves. Finally, a crowd of men had all they could take and beat their way into the mansion through the attic and were horrified by what they saw. The men who broke down the door of the slaves' quarters were immediately faced with the evidence of terrible cruelty and torture. The Lalori slaves were emaciated and chained to the wall or locked in cages. They were forced to wear spiked iron collars and were all showed signs of being beaten, starved, and even partially skinned alive. The newspaper, the New Orleans Bee, reported Seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, were seen suspended by the neck with their limbs apparently outstretched and torn from one extremity to the other. They had been confined by Delphine for several months in the situation from which they had been rescued and had been merely kept in existence to prolong their suffering and to make them taste all that the most refined cruelty could inflict for the love of Mike. The 70-year-old cook who was emaciated and chained to the stove, admitted to starting a fire, saying that she would rather die and continue to endure the torture and abuse of, and that she suffered at the hands of Madame LaLaurie. What's even worse, there was evidence that human experimentation had been play, taking place in the attic. One woman's bones had been broken and reset to make her look like a crab. Another woman's skin had been peeled off in spirals, and still yet another poor soul had their intestines removed and wrapped around her body. After the crowd heard of the horrible abuse the, and finally realized the extent of Delphine LaLaurie's depravity, they were well beyond livid. They started calling for the LaLaurie's heads, and a lynch mob formed to deliver the punishment. Who could blame them after seeing that the deviants had snapped bones and tried to fillet people? Uh... By that time, the Lalores had ran for the hills. That really made the mob that much matter. That's when they attacked the mansion. They completely destroyed the property, tearing down what remained of the house until the sheriff reported that there was scarcely anything remaining but some stone walls. The backyard was dug up and Leah's remains were disinterred. While there were rumors that other bodies were also buried there, those were never found. The folks who were kept as slaves were rescued from the fire, but two of them tragically succumbed to their injuries. Afterward, those surviving were taken to the local jail where they could be put in public display because apparently, I guess, they hadn't suffered enough. The New Orleans Bee reported that over 4,000 people visited the jail over the next two days to see the poor people for themselves and to convince themselves of their sufferings. That's what they called rubbernecking back in, I guess. Delphine and Louis Lelore 
were never punished in any way for their terrible cruelty. They were able to escape the mob by jumping into an awaiting carriage driven by the coachman, Bastine, and fleeing towards Lake Pontchartrain. They then hopped a schooner and made their way to Mobile, Alabama, and eventually landed in Paris by way of New York. It is most commonly believed that Delphine spent the rest of her days in exile in Paris. Some reports say that the rest of her children eventually joined her there, and Delphine lived a quiet life abroad with her family until she passed peacefully away in 1849. But, and there's always a but, there is a tomb in St. Louis Cemetery in New Orleans with the name Madame LaLaurie. Madame Delphine LaLaurie. And a death date of December 1842. Uh, so some people believe that the deviant did actually make it back to New Orleans. The exact place and date of her death remains actually a mystery, even today. Today, the LaLaurie House is one of New Orleans' most famous attractions. And past decades, it has served as a home for wayward boys, a school, an apartment building, and even a furniture store. In 2007, actor Nicolas Cage brought the house. Uh, allegedly, he never even lived in it, but Mr. Cage lost the home in foreclosure proceedings two years later. Although many visitors to New Orleans pass the home and view it from the outside, it is now a private residence and tourists are not permitted inside. I really hope you've uh, got something out of our story today. It's not a pretty one, but it had to be told. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. Of course, you'll be following Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. And to get this World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast, which runs along with it, I'd like to give you a special word of thanks for subscribing to the podcast. You'll be helping me keep the lights on and the stories coming. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another episode of World of Murder Mystery and Legend. I'll see you then.